Thank you, Nina. <laughs> uh, first, I'm thrilled to be here today. So I'd like to say that um, for this invitation and to work with Sarah on this presentation. So thank you all. So I'd like to begin like I usually begin with anything I do, but uh, by honoring those whose shoulders I stand. So I'm going to speak only of three today. I am the daughter of Juanita Judd Briggs and Stephen Nathan Briggs. I am also the sister of William Alvin Briggs. All are now ancestors, and I am the only one who carries this powerful lineage. So, um, a little bit about who I am. I retired in February uh, as an English professor at a community college in Baltimore, Maryland, where my work was how we engage in various kinds of practices that open us up to speaking about difficult topics like race, gender, and sexual orientation. Um, I arrived in Kansas City on February 12th, and well, you know the rest of the story. But as for my spiritual background, I was raised in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, where I questioned far too much. And my father decided that the Bible was more like a historical piece of literature. And he also infused the story of Africa and enslavement and is a means of understanding what is the Black 
church, what does it mean to be black Christians? And that led them to dismiss him from teaching Sunday school. Okay, so I would eventually take my Buddhist vows and I found that that was important because it really allowed me to um, understand more about how I saw things. It really accepted my beliefs in how I should live and how we all should live. I am also a virtual member of the Middle Collegiate Church in New York City. So if you put all that together, it's not surprising that my educational research has looked at how Buddhist wisdoms and African-American spiritual wisdoms intersect because I am my father's daughter. So I'm going to pass this on to Sarah. Thanks, Stephanie. Um, I like this. Stephanie and I talked about, you know, you can only cover so much in a brief bio. Um, and you heard the impressive things that Stephanie's done as well. But it doesn't often capture kind of who that person is and what they're bringing to this conversation. So in that spirit, uh, my spiritual backgrounds. I grew up in a non-denominational, um, evangelical, pretty conservative Christian church. It was um, very white. That may not surprise you. And a lot has changed in me um, since then. But I have been reflecting lately that I am really grateful, actually, to have learned expressiveness in that space. Um, singing, dancing, weeping, um, those were all welcome. They were all welcome. But I found that it really limited my understanding of God and what is sacred, and that it also caused me to believe that who I am is inherently broken, sinful, and just wrong, and that my body is those things too. So I've carried a lot of true-false, right-wrong narrative that I've spent a lot of time unbraiding from what I consider my truer self. And I've always really felt connected to God in the midst of that. Um, God used to be a male magician type figure for me. And then God became a close friend. Um, but now God feels pretty mysterious and spacious, but still um, very intimate and close. So they are often represented as a tiger or a lion or a snake, which is a long story for another time, which I'm happy to tell. Um, but in recent years, I found my way into Christian mysticism and liberation theology, which has really guided me toward an expansive faith. I sometimes view my spirituality as rings of a tree because I know that I can't move beyond the religion of my childhood, and nor is that the goal. Um, it's a part of me. It's a part of my story but I can expand it to be liberating and deeply inclusive and welcoming. And it can also hold the space for uncertainty and agitation. And I need a lot of that. So I still have a lot of exploring to do. Um, I know God will continue to shift and evolve, but that's in a nutshell, if we can summarize it in a paragraph, that's where I'm at. So, well, Stephanie, let's get into it, shall we? <laughs> All right, so I'd like to begin with uh, this concept of rhythm over time, um, which was first introduced by the Mystic Soul Project. Um, it's a person of color led and centering organization that explores spirituality, activism, and healing. The organizers of Mystic Soul talk about rhythm over time as a rule of life for their organization and present an invitation for others to live rhythmically instead of being bound to our cultural construct of time. I think this conversation that we're having tonight is so important for the open table community 
if we are going to be constructive and responsive anti-racist and mystical activists like we often talk about. So that said, when we talk about time, we are talking tonight about our dominant culture understanding of time, but it's worth noting that there are many other ways to understand time. We've just normalized this one way, which we'll be unpacking um, as, a, as the dominant cultural framework. So Stephanie and I spent a lot of time unpacking this together. <laughs> like, what is time? What is time? Um, so I just want to give you a little bit on that, and then I'm going to pass it over to Stephanie for the fun part when she talks about rhythm and what that is. So time is something known. So we know right now uh, it is 6.39 p.m. We know that this um, wraps at 7.30-ish. It is rhythm over time, after all. And um, we know, gosh, we know that tomorrow's Monday. We know that next month is August. Next year is 2021. I think I got all this right. <laughs> um, it's something that we've kind of agreed upon. This is the way that time flows. It's very linear, moves in one direction so that everything behind us is something that we consider past and everything ahead of us is something that we call future. Um, point A to point B, essentially. And I would call this, um, we would call time reactive instead of responsive. How we engage with time is often highly individual, so it cuts us off from real relationship and community with one another. Dominant culture has an obsession with the mastery of time and control. In the framework of time, we are valuing production and success above all else. We're centering on binary thinking. So there's a right way to spend our time. There's a wrong way to waste our time. And so in that, I would say it's weaponized against ourselves and against each other. It's tied up in our worthiness. And depending on how we spend our time, um, we may be worth more or less, according to dominant cultural standards, white supremacy culture. So personally, I'll just share that this is um, a huge source of anxiety for me, and I do struggle with anxiety. Um, and I know that many of us, especially these days, can struggle with a lot of anxiety. Um, but I'm thinking about deadlines, so self-imposed deadlines, other deadlines, performing well um, in the time given, proving my worth so that I can show what I can accomplish, I guess, during a certain time frame, which um, it just, like, even now as I talk about it, like, I feel that anxiety in my gut, like, it really lives in my body. Um, and I want to invite, Stephanie has uh, quite a story <laughs> that I think ties this concept well of time. So I'll pass it back over there. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, okay, I've got two stories looking at time, linear time and nonlinear time. So I'll start with the time that Sarah is sort of talking about and, and how that involves and how that happens. And I'm going to tell this story because I'm a storyteller. I'm going to tell this story um, based on time, but there are underlying stories here, which are about race, actually, they, and, and, and other elements and challenges when it comes to race and, and gender or whatever it might be. So just um, uh, hang with me here. But the focus is time. So when I was about 19, I got a job at a department store. I was in college, I needed to make some money. So I got this gig 
and it was in the evening and everything was great and it was inventory time and if you've ever worked in retail you know how in you know this works you know they they do inventory at a time where it's really dead in the store so we don't have to be interrupted by too many customers coming in so the manager had arranged that our very small department it was a really small department i mean you could see it from any angle you could see anybody coming in going out we were small so there's only two of us only two sales associates and both African-American. So I'll just go that, I'll just tell you that bit of information. And um, so she informed us that, you know, my job was to do the inventory and the job of the other associate was to keep an eye on the floor and do any sales. So I was, you know, I was told how to do this inventory. And so there I am working, working, and I'm like, this is taking far too long. So I realized, well, let me talk to the other associate and we'll work together. If we could work together, we can get this done quickly and we still can see everything that's happening on the floor. So we worked and we worked and this went on for a few days until my boss came in and she reprimanded us for doing it this way because we were told that the most timely and effective way was to do this as an individual task. And so that was fine. I finished up, but I was almost done. We were almost done with the inventory. I finished it up. Everything was fine until the day came that I had to meet with um, some folks from HR or whatever to review me. And yeah, I'm 19, like, what do I care? I just want to go to my classes. But I go and I have a black mark on my, you know, the work that I've done. And they said, well, there seems to be a problem. And the problem was about the inventory. And they asked me what happened. I told them what I did. They then call in my boss. They asked my boss what happened. And she informed them what happened, that I didn't do what I was supposed to do. But the problem was, it was done on time, no mistakes, no problems, no red flags that said that people were pissed off. You know, sales were as they were supposed to be. And this is what I learned. I learned that at that moment, that what I had done was not right. But I also learned that what I had done was successful. And so they asked me, the people who were interviewing, who were talking to me, who happened to be probably HR, that, you know, would you like to train to be an assistant manager? Well, I'm like, yeah, but no, I don't really don't want to be an assistant manager. I mean, I'm 19. But I said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And then they moved me to another department because now I understand that this would have been a problem. And I want to also explain that the HR person was an African-American woman. And she actually knew what I was going to be up against with my um, manager. So time, linear, nonlinear. Nonlinear being a little different, um, it means you're more open. You know, you're more open. It appears to be random. So I was trying to deal with a nonlinear way in a linear space. So another example of linear uh, or nonlinear would be dance, um, jazz, like avant-garde jazz or rap. Those are music forms that appear to be random, right? So. An example of how that works is um, Alvin Ailey, okay? Um, I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity of seeing the Alvin Ailey free dance concerts on Facebook, but um, one of the pieces they did was Juba. 
And uh, so the story is the choreographer asked all the dancers to come in and said to them, uh, well, here's a new piece. And they said, well, what's the time on this? And he said, well, seven, four, five, two, six, seven. And the dancers were panicked because they had been traditionally trained in more classical forms. They were used to six, eight time, four, four time. They were not used to this sort of odd combination of time and movement. And they were uncomfortable because this was unfamiliar. You might say, how is this possible for a dance company of color? I mean, we can also place on top of that stereotypes. You know, black folks understand music and rhythm. Why would this be so confusing? But that was not this story. They were trained in a more linear fashion. And the outcome for them was they had to settle into this new notion of time. They had to settle into the discomfort of timing. They had to allow themselves to sink into the rhythm of this new way of moving. So we have here this idea of linear and nonlinear, that they have to come together. We have to understand that, not, that one way is not the only way, that, and that we, we, we fit in different boxes, but we have to learn to be outside of those boxes. Beautiful. Um, so I would say, um, Stephanie and I talked a lot about this, that when time, this is Stephanie's line, I want to make sure that I tell you that, um, when time is done right, right in quotations, right, we're trying to get out of that right-wrong framework, but it is deeply communal. So when time is done right, it's deeply communal. Rhythm does not have to completely erase time, but instead it is in relationship with time, which I love that. That sounds so freeing. Rhythm does not allow time to lord over us or to dictate our worth but it is responsive and alive in the moment. Alvin Ailey, jazz, rap, that's examples of that. So um, let's keep all of that in mind about time and rhythm. Just kind of make sure you set that here for the rest of the conversation. But I am going to share my screen so that we can um, introduce into the conversation some of these characteristics from white supremacy culture and potential antidotes from the um, mystic tradition, mysticism. So give me a second as I navigate our technology. All right, can you all see something that says white supremacy culture characteristics? Yes, do you like that everybody always asks if you can see something or hear something <laughs> when it's pretty likely, but. Um, all right, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these because these are ingrained um, into many of us, so they should sound pretty familiar, but I think it's pretty important to outline them. So let's start with, whoops. All right, sense of urgency. So sense of urgency. This is, I wanna mention that this is from Tima Okun, which is based on the work of Daniel Buford and others from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. Um, I think it's important to name that because Tima Okun is a white woman and she's working in partnership with a lot of work of people of color, black, indigenous, and non-black people of color. So sense of urgency, um, we could define that as fast, short-term, does not consider the consequences, often results in sacrificing potential allies for quick or highly visible results, often sacrifices the interests of communities of color to win victories for white people. 
quantity over quality. Focus here is on producing. Things that are measurable are inherently worth more than things that cannot be measured. For example, numbers are more valuable than relationships. Little or no value attached to the process that gets us there. And then progress is bigger or more. So su success driven progress is defined by growth and expansion and rarely considers long term effects or equitable tactics. So take a moment, a breath to let that sink in. Um, what I learned as I was sitting with these characteristics is that we could honestly tie any of the white supremacy culture characteristics to this conversation. And I would say that particularly because our relationship with and understanding of time seems to be an essential framework for these characteristics to function in dominant culture. So a couple that came to mind in addition to this and um, that we may have covered in a previous gathering or will be covering in a future one, uh, rugged individualism, perfectionism, either or thinking. All of these begin to show up in this conversation, I think, if we begin viewing our understanding of time as a colonized version of time. All right. So moving on to mysticism. Um, mysticism is, I think for a lot of us, is a foggy, foggy term, and it may be a new idea. So I wanna take the time to just give you um, a bit of a definition, some, some terms, a framework to work with, starting with union with love or union with the divine. And I'd like you to consider here that divine is, um, Divine in a really broad sense, because mysticism isn't tied to a particular religious tradition. We find mysticism in Judaism, in Islam, and um, Buddhism, as Stephanie can attest to. But my training and understanding, of course, is coming from the Christian um, mysticism perspective. So an encounter, experience, awareness, or consciousness of the divine. Mysticism is also characterized by a mutual seeing, a seeing between self and the divine. So the briefest of histories when it comes to mysticism, because we don't have time for all of it, nor do I know all of it, I should add. Um, but I think this is important for our conversation. This uh, Christian mysticism stems from the third century desert Amas and Abbas, those are mothers and fathers that physically moved away from empire, the empire of the day in order to rebuild community together and develop new ways of life, communal ways of life. They weren't satisfied with the status quo and they introduced some pretty radical spirituality to Christianity, which was already pretty radical, I think, at the time if we read about Jesus um, in the, again, quote unquote, right way, um, it's also important to note that these were Egyptian Christian, Christian mystics, so not white people. These were black and brown people doing this work, introducing this work. All right, so some mysticism characteristics to take with us today. Mystery, the opposite of fundamentalism, no room for dogma or mastery. Um, mysticism and the mystery that comes along with it is about constant exploration, not arriving at the answers. Mysticism is about imagery. 
um, many varied images and expressions of the divine, which invites sensuality, intimacy, and a broad understanding of what is sacred. If you explore some of the um, mystic texts, which I've um, loved doing in the spiritual director training program I'm in through Mount St. Scholastica, um, you'll see images of God can be expressed as water, as a snake, as a castle, a seraph, clouds. Um, and what I love about this, and these are just those that are documented, there's many mystics, many mystics among us. What I love is that it always seems like these mystics are blurring the line of what is self, what is self and what is God. So what we see as within and without, um, it always seems like that becomes a little foggy, a little blurry. Embodiment, so tangible and felt in the present moment. Tangible and felt in the present moment values feelings and connectedness over intellectualism. So even though there is mystery to this, there's, it's hard to put words around mysticism and how it's felt and experienced. It is still felt and experienced and in the body, in our bodies. Contemplation and action, I think this is a really big one when it comes to mysticism. Um, and it calls for a balance of both. So one leads into the other, even overlaps. As we engage in contemplative practices, I believe we invite a deeper truth that will guide us into real action. So the overlapping concept, I think is, um, I think we see this all the time in our major um, social movements, movements um, like the civil rights movement, people were engaging in communal silence together, stillness, celebration among many things in the midst of intense action, intense protests and demonstrations. Um, Standing Rock, we saw this when indigenous people engaged in beautiful ancestral rituals on the front lines of what they were doing. And right now, um, right this very moment, Black Lives Matter, Poor People's Campaign, song, drum, performance art, poetry. These are deeply contemplative acts um, that are happening, they're happening in the midst of action. So hopefully you can imagine that with me. And then the last characteristic I'll introduce is non-attachment, which is the constant invitation to new awareness of the divine. Living between what you know to be true and what you don't yet know. This is about um, something dynamic. It's not static. <laughs> um, and I, I find that personally to be very freeing. So I hope you can see how these characteristics are so opposite from the white uh, supremacy culture characteristics, the one on the previous page, um, and also the ones that we've discussed in previous gatherings. Um, they are invitations, these mysticism characteristics, I believe, are invitations into something living and fluid, whereas white supremacy offers one restrictive and oppressive way of being, and that's good for none of us. All right, so I'm gonna stop sharing my screen, I think, for this next one. So one thing I wanna talk about before we, um, before we move on from this is that um, we can do some real damage, I believe, if we do not become aware of the ways in which white supremacy culture shapes our understanding of even this, of even mysticism and these concepts. Um, consider influences like individualism, patriarchy, nationalism, these can shape our understanding of how we even imagine these concepts, imagine embodiments, imagine non-attachment. 
um, and they can serve to exclude, limit, and harm ourselves and harm others. So the work that we have to do is continually see, continually see and address white supremacy culture within us, while also inviting in mystical practices and thoughts. You'll find that, um, you know, antidotes for white supremacy culture in these characteristics, um, but it's still so easy, I think, to get attached to our images of God. That's kind of um, what we've what we've seen. There's a lot of like God father language, for instance. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's quite an attachment that we have. Or we might engage in contemplative practices, but choose um, not to act for one reason or another. And I say that one particularly for um, us white people on this call, because it's far more comfortable for many of us to stay in the um, internal and reflective space than to um, take action, even if it's within us, but hopefully it brings us in relationship with others outside of us in community, healing community. Um, it's a lot easier to stay in that reflective space than to do the work of transformation. And if there's one takeaway from this section, one thing I'd like you to consider, it would be that um, if mysticism does not guide us deep into the liberative work of anti-racism, then we are practicing something false. I'm gonna say that again. If mysticism does not guide us deep into the liberative work of anti-racism, then we are practicing something false. I think that mysticism has the power to guide us into rhythm, just as Stephanie was outlining, outlining for us as a way of being, but we need to remember that it will likely be met with resistance and not only from forces outside of us, but from within ourselves. We are well trained in this stuff. And I know that um, when I challenge for my own sense of urgency, for example, even in preparing for this conversation, um, my anxiety tends to spike. Um, and I grasp for control, I grasp for rightness or what, what else, whatever I perceive to be true, um, factual, anything. Um, so this stuff shows up in a big way, I think on a daily basis. Um, I hope we can see that in ourselves and there's a lot of work to be done. So I'm excited for Stephanie to begin to connect some of these dots to us. Um, I'll pass it back over to you. Thank you, Sarah. There's much to unpack. I can honestly say I cannot speak to white supremacy. But what I can speak to is the value of looking deeply, of taking the time to just pause and take a decent hard look at where we're going. But what does that mean to take a deeper dive, a deeper look into ourselves? And that's what the practice of Buddhism has done for me, has allowed me to not only sit with, but to look at something deeply and sit in it to actually just sit in the stuff that surrounds me. 
So I'm going to talk a little bit about what occurred since I have lived here in Kansas City, particularly the first month of COVID, because that month would be transformative for me. And hopefully what I share will open you up to a way of perhaps looking deeply at this idea of time. So as you know, I retired, that was on February 3rd. I arrived in Kansas City on February 12th, knowing only three people. And then on March 9th, the city shuts down. And I don't know what happened during that time, but I might've been busy unpacking and you know, just getting into what my place should look like, but I failed to get what I needed. And so there I was, I did have toilet tissue, but I didn't have disinfectant. I had six surgical masks, the disposable ones, three sets of disposable gloves, and barely enough hand sanitizer. I had a little bottle in my, my purse. And what was also happening during that one month, seven people I knew had COVID and they had varying levels of COVID. And then addition to that, one person died. So to say the least, I was panic stricken to go outside in the world, not having proper, you know, um, uh, proper attire, not having what I needed when I walked in so I wouldn't be dragging whatever this was into my home. So I decided to do something. I decided to sit. I decided to practice. I decided that for a month, every day for 30 minutes, I would sit. And uh, I just want you to know that's not the only practice you can do. And there's a handout that is, um, there's a link to a handout to the Center for Contemplative Mind and Society. And you can go to their contemplative tree. And the tree tells you all these different ways that you can be present, you know, um, walking, running, um, praying, drawing, whatever that is. But for me, I had to get quiet. So I did this for a month. And in that time, something happened. These, this mantra came, or we can call it a statement, you know, or a slogan that started to come and I started to be clear on something. It's something to ponder. So this is what occurred. This is the four point mantra. And I think we do have a slide for that. Um, and I will just talk a little bit about these four points. So the first point is that came. Now note, this just arrived. Um, the first one was, there is only the present moment. All there is, is the present moment. Now we all know this. We all know that right now, we are just here. We are together. We know that this moment, this is what we're doing. We're not really doing anything else. We may try to do something else, but we're, you know, my mom would always say, you can only do one thing at a time. So we're, we're only doing one thing and we're present in that. And the definition of what this is, 
we also know it as mindfulness. You know, we've heard of the term mindfulness. And mindfulness was a term coined by John Kabat-Zinn. He was a professor at MIT. And he said that mindfulness was paying attention in the present moment without judgment. Actually, he said it was paying attention in a certain way in the present moment without judgment. Let's just think about that. And take a deep breath. The second point that arrived was everything beyond the present moment is unknown. Everything beyond the present moment is unknown. How is that possible? Well, in the Buddhist tradition, not knowing is known as beginner's mind. And the opposite of that is that we're an expert. And an expert knows what's going to happen. And they know their subject deeply. Yet they are blinded when someone comes in and says something different or something in opposition. A beginner can see with fresh eyes. They have unbiased minds. A beginner can see with fresh, unbiased minds. The not knowing allows us to cultivate the ability to meet life without expectations, prejudice, or preconceptions. Being willing, we're willing to allow each moment to flow in and then we get a better understanding as it flows in. So whatever is coming, comes in, and we have the time in the present moment to look at it and address it for what it is. It's right there in front of us. And we take that information and we do the best we can with that information, the best we can, so it does what needs to be done for all beings all sentient beings. This is tough. This is hard work. Not knowing. There is a, a wonderful line by a woman by the name of Blanche Hartman, and this is what she said. Be willing not to be an expert. Be willing not to know. Not knowing is most in intimate not knowing is most intimate. Let's take a deep breath. The third mantra that came, the third point, was the one that surprised me the most. And it was, it's always been this way. It's always been this way. We've always just been in the present moment and we've never known what's going to happen next. But we didn't believe that until COVID. COVID shifted everything on us. COVID said, this idea that you believe that you have control is a myth. You thought you had control of time, but that's a myth. 
But we had fully accepted the belief that we had control. We could move through our lives, what was going to happen next. We actually knew that if it didn't work, plan A didn't work, we had plan B, C, D, etc. We were prepared. Yet COVID pulled that, that carpet out from underneath our feet. We didn't know when or how or where or what. And we were reminded we never knew. We never had an idea. And meanwhile, COVID is saying, now that you don't know, let me pull back the veil. Let us take a look at what might be wrong. What is happening? What is taking place? Why doesn't this work anymore? Why does what I believe not work? What's wrong with it? We are also seeing an unveiling of something else. We're unveiling these, these inequities. These inequities are coming up. They've always been there, but now here they are. Here they are, and we cannot do anything about time. Time has just halted as far as we're concerned. But, you know, it's always been this way. We never had control of that time. Hmm. Let's take a breath. Number four. This one was a little surprising because it didn't happen while I was meditating. It actually happened when I got up and I realized, oh, so now what am I going to do? So now what are we going to do? So now, what are you going to do? And that's about heartfulness. This idea that we must sink into our hearts. To understand what has to happen, we must sink into our hearts. We must see what it is and we must be present with what it is. We must be present with what it is. And that's complex because that must, you must be present with something that may not feel so great. And you're not aware that it didn't feel so great, but now here you are in the present moment and you're, you're allowing this information to come in and you have to sit with it because you're learning it's never been any different. So now what are we going to do? Let's take a deep breath. I carry this mantra with me all the time. This mantra has allowed me to breathe. It has allowed me to see clearly. It has allowed me to recognize something about myself that I sometimes don't like. But that's what time does. That's what happens when we say, let me look at time. Let me look at this. Let me stop trying to control it. Oh, no, I can't control it because I never had any control. So before we go into the breakout session, I just want to say a few words, okay? Um, 
what we've sort of experienced here this evening is this sort of summarization of a conversation that Sarah and I had that totaled maybe about seven or eight hours, three meetings. The last one we were, you know, at it for like three hours, right? And I just want to say we were strangers who took a deep dive into our faith traditions, issues of race, white supremacy characteristics, sitting with our differences, our individual life experiences, and then uncovering how much we had in common. This is profound. The idea of being open to how we even consider opening up to be just in these conversations. This is what rhythm over time looks like. This is what it takes getting up off our cushions, getting up off of our, our, our prayers, our minds, getting up, getting up and having these kinds of conversations in love, a deep dive into the difference, a deep dive into time. And I'm grateful that I got to do that with Sarah. Me too, Stephanie. This has been, it's just, um, yeah, it's amazing what you can discover with another human, just in that space of investigating this stuff. It's been an honor for me as well. Um, all right, so breakout rooms. We only have one question for you. Um, we wrestled with about 77 questions before we um, landed on the very profound question, how does this conversation resonate for you? <laughs> And that's intentional because there's a lot here. Um, so I know that Nick is posting that question in the chat along with just some of the like keywords maybe to help you remember, because I know you don't have those slides in your chat. You'll be in the same breakout rooms as before. Um, we'll be there about eight minutes, seven or eight minutes. So it's not a lot of time. You have about two to three minutes per person. Um, and the thing that I'll ask you to do, we are measuring it in time, obviously, but be in relationship with time, listen deeply to one another, um, breathe. And I think, um, oh, and if you're listening on Facebook Live, I should mention, you will not be sent to a breakout room, but we highly encourage you to engage in the conversation with those around you, or perhaps even journaling if you're by yourself, um, be in relationship with a pen in your hand. So we will meet back here and please stick around because we have surprises for you <laughs> later. Okay, I think everyone is back. And I hope you, thank you, Maddie. I hope you all had a great time, brief, great brief time discussing. Um, all right, so two things. I would like to invite um, everybody to engage with the chat and just um, share a word, a phrase, just kind of plug those things into the chat. Um, something that resonates with you um, so that we can see where you are, where each other are, be in rhythm with each other. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> yeah, connects. Thank you. And as this is coming in, if there are a few people that would be willing to share um, with the group, you can unmute yourself, I believe. I believe you can unmute yourself and um, just share. We maybe have time for 
three people? Well, I guess I could say a few things if you like. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Okay. Well, I appreciate everything that both of you shared tonight. I resonated with everything deeply and I appreciate this community. Um, the contemplative life to me changed everything for me. And, and then I, I understand very well that it isn't just sitting on a stump and meditating that there has to be something come forth from that. And I was sharing with my partner in the breakout that years ago I had picked up from Henry now and this, this idea that silence leads to community which leads to action. And I had been wondering, I, I read that about five years ago, way before I became a sojourner and studied spiritual direction in the contemplative life. But I have realized, I see this pattern in my life of how I, I began to understand what silence is and then community is forming around me. I'm making community, I'm finding community. And then now is the action piece and so I, I'm not sure what all is mine to do, um, but, but I have a heart that knows how to listen to what that is and, and a willingness to do it. I did, ask a, I did ask an old white lady in a store in St. Charles, Missouri the other day why she didn't have any Black Lives Matters t-shirts. She had Blue Lives Matter and she had flags and I was just getting a little onesie from my new grandbaby and, and I was very polite and uh, she thanked me and asked me to shop again and I might check her out. If she doesn't have any, I probably won't buy anything else from her. But yeah, yeah, there's, there's action. It has to be both. It has to be both. Because we can't, we can't do just action or we'll be reactive. Yeah. And that never helps anybody. But to um, come out of a contemplative space where we know what is ours to do, heart speaks to heart, deep speaks to deep, it'll, it will come. And we just, all we have to do is just say yes. Hmm. yes. Thank you, Kathy. Yes. You're welcome. So in closing, um, I want to ask you, Stephanie, what is it that you do um, to challenge time, challenge this construct of time and invite rhythm into your life? Thank you. Um, I think rhythm is a form of forgiveness that nothing is quite as it seems. You know, after living somewhere um, for the past, I don't even know, I don't count the months, uh, where I know so few people, I have a lot of time to reflect on the creation of a new life in ways I never anticipated. So I think when I'm thinking about forgiving, it's fluid. It's a, I have to have a forgiving schedule all the time. And, you know, so this is it's a fluidity of time that life, has its own flow. I think I've also learned that during this time of COVID that life has its own, its own flow and my body has its own flow. So I commit to a morning stretch, a workout, I do my meditation, I journal, and it grounds me for the day. And um, 
But I also know that time shifts and that pisses me off. Yeah. And uh, it leads, but it leads to changes and it makes me remember that I need not to know that sometimes I just have to be in that moment and breathe. Just breathe, breathe into the change. And I think if there's nothing else I can do, it is breathe into the change. And you, Sarah? What is your thought? Yeah, um, a lot of practices. I think um, it's all about being in relationship with my body. So engaging in practices that invite me to be in the present moment. So certainly breathing, stillness, silence. Um, but lately, and also um, movement, big, big body movement. So swimming, putting my body in water, um, yoga, um, yoga asana, the movement practice, which I always love because we don't count in seconds generally in that space, we count in breaths and that's gonna be different for each person. And then dancing, um, that's a huge one too. And I'm not talking about like choreographed stuff. This is just like full on embarrassing freestyle dancing in my bedroom. <laughs> um, try it, it's great. Uh, prioritizing rest um, and all of this cultivates my imagination. That's really been key. Being playful, being playful and in real relationship with others. Um, but speaking of dancing, Stephanie, I think you've got a little story that we need to hear. <laughs> all right. You know, I'm the storyteller. My mother used to say, you know, there's nothing that she does without telling a story. So um, I'm going to begin just telling you a little story about um, moving and movement. So when I retired from teaching, I refused to have a retirement party because I didn't want people asking me one question. Why are you moving to Kansas City? And uh, but then this other group that I work with, this contemplative community circle that I formed, they said they'd like to give me a party. And I said, well, OK, but all I want to do is dance because I figured if we were all dancing, no one would have the time to ask me that question. So I thought it was going to be in someone's basement or in their living room. But what they did is they rented the floor of a uh, bar with a DJ and we danced for three hours. And I, I, I think there was a disco ball, but I'm not sure. But when the DJ said, this is the last song, I started looking around at all these people and their faces, and it felt like a scene from Friday Night Fever with John Travolta. And we are grabbing each other's hands and this music starts playing. Right? Ah, there it is. And so we're grabbing each other's hand and I begin spinning three and four times around. And we're looking, looking at this blur of faces. I mean, it's like a movie. And as I move from one person to the next and we're spinning and there's a light of the disco ball that was or wasn't there, I don't know. But then I got to the last person. And we spun around about three or four times. And it was amazing because the song ended the exact moment that we finished our spinning. And I had this perfect sense of timing and rhythm, nonlinear time, 
and we were ending with the exact so let's dance. So I want you to turn to your view, um, what you have the gallery view. We're going to go to the gallery view now, and we're going to do some things that you haven't expected to do. You're going to dance. You can dance, you can play, you can do whatever you want, but you want to do it all. everyone that's it for us you feel the rhythm in your bodies wow i love this group great job <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing <laughs> thank you